0: Wants us start up pressures. T-minus minutes
1: 15 seconds.
0: Falcon 9 is configured for flight.
1: 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Ignition, lift no, dog
2: On the 23rd of May 2019, Elon Musk's private spaceflight company SpaceX launched the first 60 satellites for Starlink. This constellation or group of satellites is intended to provide high-speed internet access around the world. As the satellites entered orbit, astronomers couldn't believe their eyes. Just above the horizon, they could see a line of illuminated dots, like a string of shining pearls moving across the sky. And many of them were as bright as the brightest stars. Hello and welcome to Babbage, The Economist weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, a science correspondent at The Economist. Throughout human history dark skies have been essential in our attempts to understand the universe. This week we'll investigate the challenges that new constellations of satellites pose for the field of astronomy, and whether anything at all can be done about them.
3: As a fan of looking at the night sky, as a a phenomenon, it was remarkable.
2: Mark McCochrian is a senior advisor for science and exploration at the European Space Agency. He watched the launch of the Starlink satellites with some measure of trepidation.
3: I mean, to see just this constant stream of stuff coming and coming and coming, there was a, a degree of, I don't know, geeky excitement almost. But because I knew what they were and I knew also there'd been enough discussion, I didn't get to see them immediately because of the weather and everything else. There was absolutely a feeling of nausea, that you know this is just 60, and of course at that point we didn't really know what the mitigation strategies were from their side. Could they make them fainter? Why were they so bright? Was there something about them that was intrinsically bright and
4: they were going to remain bright And then we saw the news that Starlink was planning to send tens of thousands of these satellites.
2: That's Olivier Hainaut, an astronomer at the European Southern Observatory, headquartered near Munich in Germany. The organization operates the world's largest ground-based observatories.
4: And so there were all these Panic messages, oh my God, it's the end. Uh, There will be 40,000 of these bright satellites in the sky. That's way much more than bright stars. It's the end of astronomy as we know it.
2: Constellations of satellites already exist. But what sets the future ones apart is their sheer size. SpaceX has around 1,700 satellites already in orbit and wants to send up at least 40,000. Other companies have filed requests for an even greater number. By 2030, 100,000 new communications satellites could appear as part of constellations in low Earth orbit. That's defined as anything below an altitude of 2,000 kilometers above the Earth's surface. The groups of satellites, so-called mega constellations, are meant to provide fast internet access to customers around the world, especially those in remote locations, such as in the middle of an ocean, say, or a village that's far off the beaten track. And it's not hard to see their commercial appeal.
5: The revenue potential of launching satellites, servicing the space station whatnot, that taps out around $3 billion a year, I think uh, providing broadband is is more like an order of magnitude more than that probably 30 billion a year mm-hmm. Starlink will, ha- will will serve the hardest to serve customers that uh, telcos otherwise have trouble doing with with landlines or even with with cell towers
2: Elon Musk, the founder of SpaceX, spoke about his ambitions for low Earth orbit at a satellite conference last year
5: I am confident that we will not cause any impact whatsoever in astronomical discoveries? Zero. That's my prediction. (laughs) Now that the satellites are on orbit, I'd be impressed if if somebody can actually tell me where where all of them are. I've not met someone who can tell me where all of them are, not even one person. So, I mean, it can't be that big of a deal.
2: Scientists like Olivier Hainaut at the European Southern Observatory wanted to answer Musk's questions with proper calculations.
4: The first reactions were a little bit panicky, saying, oh my God, it's, it's big, it's bad, and it's happening. So we really wanted to understand what the impact is. And so I started to do some simulations So the first set of simulation was really simple. And, I mean, it was essentially a couple of Excel sheets with uh, tables of numbers. And from that, we realised, okay, it's bad, but it's not bad for the reasons that were originally taught.
2: Although the Starlink satellites looked extremely bright just after launch, by the time they'd moved to their higher operational orbits... They were already much fainter to anyone looking from the ground.
4: Also, the way the, the Starlink satellites are positioned is different—the their attitude, so their orientation in in the sky. So, right after launch, they're flying basically flat, fully deployed, and once they reach their uh, operational altitude, they fold the solar panel up, so that seen from the, the ground you don't see it anymore. So that tends to make them much darker.
2: To remain visible from that vantage point, a satellite would have to be illuminated by the sun.
4: There is only a small period of time after sunset or before sunrise, during which the sky is already dark and the sun is still illuminating the, the satellites. Before that, there are many satellites, but it's broad daylight, so you don't see them. And after that, the satellites are in the shadow of the Earth, so they are dark, you don't see them.
2: That means that only 1% or so of the full constellation would ever be high enough above the horizon in these hours.
4: So no, no panic for naked eye astronomy. Yes, some of them will be visible, but we are talking about a handful. Then the next step, of course, is to look what happens for our telescopes.
2: And that was the bad news. Satellites that are too faint to be visible by the naked eye are still bright enough for telescopes. When a bright satellite passes across the field of view of a sensitive scientific telescope, it leaves behind a streak of light in the images. Now, scientists can use software to mask the streaks, but the data it obscures is lost permanently. These kinds of tracks have been a regular annoyance to astronomers since the earliest days of the space age. But in the era of mega constellations, Satellites will have to deal with more satellite streaks than ever before.
4: If you take big state-of-the-art, big professional telescopes, the result is that we will lose of the order of a couple of percent of our data during the first and the last hour of the night.
2: If you happen to be looking for something fast-moving or temporary in the sky, a supernova explosion, for example, or the site of a promising Earth-like exoplanet, that 2% loss might turn out to matter a great deal.
6: We can miss important discoveries because data is ruined.
2: Jonathan McDowell is an astronomer at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics
6: and we can report exciting discoveries that later we have to retract because they turn out to have been a satellite and not a a true astronomical object. And so I, I think the best guess right now is that it's going to be at the level of serious pain in the neck, serious expense on the part of astronomers to work around this.
2: These effects might be felt most at the Vera Rubin Observatory which sits on a remote mountaintop in Chile. It has an 8.4-metre telescope with a very large wide-field camera. The Rubin Observatory will take pictures of the entire night sky every few days for an entire decade. Astronomers there want to create what they call the greatest time-lapse of the universe ever made.
1: All of the features that make Rubin Observatory amazing for discovering unknown things are the exact same features that make it highly vulnerable to lots of bright satellite constellations.
2: That's Meredith Rawls of the University of Washington. She's also an astronomer at the Rubin Observatory. Scientists estimate that the observatory could lose somewhere between 10 and 30 percent of its data during the first and last hour of the night.
1: So, you know, we want to have this big, wide field of view. We have this large mirror that can sense really faint things, and and we'll, we'll take images over and over to get really deep view of the sky and resolve these faint structures. And we'll also revisit over and over to find interesting changing or moving things. But both of them, there's going to be satellite streaks that we hadn't originally anticipated.
2: Whilst some of that lost data can be patched up using other images, that's not possible for everything. Things that are changing rapidly in time, for example, a variable star, or even something unexpected.
1: We literally might be in a situation where we miss finding a possible killer asteroid because there were too many satellites blocking our view.
2: But the astronomers with perhaps the most to worry about are those who scan the skies for radio waves. The Square Kilometre Array is a 1.8 billion euro project involving 14 countries. Once it's complete, in the late 2020s, it'll be the largest radio observatory in the world.
7: Every celestial body, as a planet, or as a star, or even dust in space, generates radiation. And our radio telescopes detect this radiation. And we study the universe through that. My name is Federico Di Bruno. I am the spectrum manager of the SKO.
2: He's responsible for protecting access to the radio frequency spectrum for the project's telescopes.
7: If you think of a radio telescope as a big antenna looking to the skies, trying to detect radio waves coming from stars or celestial objects, and if you imagine that now... We will have a lot of very fast-moving satellites in the sky that are also transmitting radio signals to the Earth, in this case to provide internet services. It's a problem because when the frequencies we are trying to observe are close to the frequencies that these satellites are transmitting, we will receive interference. As a result of this interference, different science cases will be affected in different ways. But in the end, what will result is is this loss of sensitivity. And what this means is that we will require more time to make observations and, and preliminary calculations show that in some science cases, it might be needed like 30 to 70% more time to do certain observations.
2: As more and more satellites are sent up to low Earth orbit, things can get a little crowded. And while NASA tracks many of the objects in space, once hundreds of thousands of satellites are up there, the likelihood of an accident will go up.
8: Station
6: Houston on Space to Ground 2 for an early wake up. In fact,
2: in November, a Russian anti-satellite missile test put the International Space Station, which is in low Earth orbit, in peril.
6: Sorry for the early call. Uh, We were recently informed of a satellite breakup.
2: The astronauts had to seal off some of the modules in which they live and work and retreat to two of the lifeboat capsules currently moored at the station's airlocks.
1: We expect that we would see this risk every 90 minutes.
2: Now this served as a reminder of the dangers of space. Mega constellations, even without rogue missiles, could cause even more trouble. The nightmare scenario is a chain reaction known as the Kessler syndrome, named after NASA's Donald Kessler, who warned about it in 1978. In that scenario, the density of objects in low Earth orbit becomes so high that collisions generate clouds of debris that go on to cause yet more collisions in a cascade. Debris
4: from the missile strike has caused a chain reaction hitting other satellites and creating new debris. Traveling faster than a high speed bullet up towards your altitude. The 2013 film the
2: Gravity actually kicks off with a fictionalized version of the effect.
1: We've lost Houston. Oh. We've
7: lost Houston. We need to get the hell out of here. some help there, man. Don't wait for us. Houston, I've lost visual Dr. Stone.
2: The ultimate risk there is that everything in an orbit might get destroyed leaving behind a field of fast-moving debris that makes using that orbit for anything else impossible for a generation or more.
3: The Kessler syndrome is not an overnight phenomenon. It doesn't just happen the way that it did in film Gravity, where one thing blows up and then everything's wiped out in a day.
2: Mark McCochrane again.
3: But they're manoeuvring constantly, Starlink, and they only manoeuvre when they know they have to. And we have a tiny, tiny fraction of the number of assets up there. We're seeing applications almost on a weekly basis for another 100,000. I mean, it's bonkers, right?
2: Say there are 100,000 satellites in low Earth orbit by 2030. And the vast majority, say 99%, work without any problems at all. That still leaves behind around a 1,000 satellites that are potentially malfunctioning possibly even beyond the navigational control of their owners on Earth. And that's a major problem. It's clear that megaconstellations of satellites have the potential to cause a lot of trouble. Coming up, are there any solutions Just a quick reminder that we're giving listeners an opportunity to let us know what you think about Babbage and all the other podcasts at The Economist. You can participate in our listener survey by going to economist.com slash Babbage survey. That's all one word, Babbage survey. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you.
6: Visit slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, NA, copyright 2024.
2: Constellations of Internet satellites pose considerable threats to the field of astronomy. But after Starlink sparked panic in 2019, Elon Musk pledged to work with astronomers to find a solution.
5: We are actually working with here members of the, the science community and antenna astronomers to minimise the potential for reflection of the satellites. So we're, we're running a bunch of experiments to, for example, um, paint the phase array antenna black instead of white, and we're working on a sunshade.
2: One of the scientists involved in these projects is Olivier Hainaut of the European Southern Observatory.
4: I have to say that the engineers at Starlink, the SpaceX guys, are really incredibly helpful in the way they reacted in the way they try first to understand the problem and then to resolve it. So, for example, uh, they've done some very simple changes, like at the launch, they used to fly the satellites flat, with their flat side pointing toward the Earth, which was the brightest possible way. Now they fly them edge-on, which aerodynamically makes no difference. But the fact that you see the satellite edge-on means that it is several magnitude fainter. And so that's why the recent launches do not have these bright string of pearls anymore. Another thing is when they are in position, so when the satellites have the solar panel flipped up, so that means that we we see basically the bottom of the satellite and the solar panel is behind, they make sure that the illuminated side of the panel is not visible from the Earth. It's just a matter of adjusting the position of the panel by a few degrees and that also improves a lot the the brightness of the satellite.
2: Other companies are also developing ideas to mitigate the impacts of the satellites, as are the astronomers themselves. They figured, for example, that if companies would share detailed orbital information with them, then they could just avoid pointing their instruments towards patches of the sky where satellites are about to pass overhead.
4: The trick is to adjust the schedule of your telescope to try to stay in the dark regions. It's not always possible. It won't solve everything because there are observations that you need to do at a given time, no matter what happens. There are also objects that will always be in a bright region of the sky, but by... Doing smart scheduling, you can gain probably a factor of two or three in terms of the, the number of satellites that you get in your images.
2: Although the initial panic has been alleviated, any lull in the concern is only temporary. Because what's clear now is that the technology does exist that could ruin the night sky for astronomers other companies will launch satellites higher than Starlink. And there's no guarantee that they, or anyone else, will cooperate with scientists to reduce the impact on the night sky.
8: I think the anti-satellite test a couple of weeks ago was a good example of that. I do really worry about individual countries as well as individual private space actors or individual industry actors.
2: That's Aparna Venkatesan. She's a professor of cosmology at the University of San Francisco.
8: And I think this is where the regulation comes in. One misstep can lead to consequences for centuries for all of us. Space
2: regulations are currently very limited. The Outer Space Treaty was signed almost 55 years ago, half a century before the emergence of megaconstellations. But there is hope that a new protocol could eventually be added
8: to this pact. Everybody, to a degree, would like clarity and regulation so they can make space work for what they would like to use it for. So whether it's astronomers who want to continue to have access to galaxy or planetary data, whether it's simply the human enjoyment of dark skies which is very important for ecological and human health as well, everybody would like to see more coordinated regulations. Changing regulations, though, is an
2: arduous process.
8: I am taken aback that there is so little regulation. At the same time, I would say this issue has come up on us so very quickly. This has burst upon the public consciousness only since May 2019, when that first train of Starlink satellites were viewed in the night sky. And, and I think since then, people have become more aware slowly. And part of the issue is the pace at which industry moves.
2: As multiple companies launch hundreds of thousands of satellites into orbit... The only way astronomers have to prevent their research from being ruined is by persuasion or direct engagement with the companies and national regulators. Scientists are trying to convince the United Nations to better protect astronomy. But no one's holding their breath that this process will definitely work, or work anytime soon.
8: I would like to see the satellite launches slow down right now, and I don't blame industry, they are accountable to investors, they need to launch at a very fast pace, you know, launches need to be every few weeks to every couple of months or so. But I'd like to see that slow down. I'd like to have space declared an environment, both a natural and a human environment, so that we can bring the full range of legal and regulatory frameworks on Earth to bear in space, and also to view debris quite seriously. So I would like to see some regulation around the crowding, around self-reporting of what's going up there.
2: In the past few years, American astronomers, including Professor Venkatesen, have appealed to their government to back a treaty that acknowledges space as a global commons.
8: The language for that is in the Outer Space Treaty, and the military already treats it as a commons. And in fact, under current international law, there's a few commons, right? The high seas, Antarctica, and space. If we don't act in the next 18 months, space could be changed for decades, if not centuries. And it'll be very hard to turn back.
6: Every time, humanity moves into a new domain, the oceans or the air or space, we go, wow, this is enormous and really empty. We can throw as much garbage here as we want and it'll never fill up.
2: Jonathan McDowell again.
6: And then, you know, because of exponentials, (laughs) pretty soon we go, oops, that wasn't quite true. And we're reaching that point in space now the way that we already reached it in the oceans. We have to now start looking at low-Earth orbit as a bounded, finite resource in which activities by spacefaring countries have environmental consequences. And the protection of the night sky is one of those resources.
2: If humanity has a common cultural heritage, the night sky is definitely a part of it. But as we've heard, no one actually has the authority to protect it. So it's been left to astronomers to find new ways to look at the heavens and satellite designers to find new ways to make their machines less bright. Each side could probably do more. And the truth is that the intrusion of space-age infrastructure probably won't bother everyone. Seeing a satellite from the ground can be a thrilling thing for many people. But the more routine that that site gets the less likely it'll elicit joy. Eventually, it'll become just one more of the many ways in which the world obscures its wonder. our thanks to Mark McCochrian, Olivier Hainaut, Jonathan McDowell, Meredith Rawls, Federico Di Bruno and Aparna Venkatesen. And thank you for listening to Babbage. If you've enjoyed this episode, we've got more astronomy coming up on the show very soon. Look out for an upcoming episode where we'll explore the great but late James Webb Space Telescope. And while you're with us, please do let us know what you think on our listener survey. There's a link in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin and mixed by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha and under the bright skies of London, this is The Economist.